Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doing business with family and friends. It's a common thing where a lot of people say don't ever do business with friends and keep your family away from your money and just keep everything separate. Don't discuss it with them. Well, today we're going to be talking about whether or not renting a property to a family member is a good idea or not. I mean, we've all heard stories, mainly bad, because I think bad stories are remembered more. And that's probably why we've heard a lot of them. Like everything, not everything is for everyone. And if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. But have you ever had an experience of having a friend or family involved with anything to do with your money? Well, we're going to discuss it all today. We can't do this episode without the team at Sphere Home Loans. Mortgage brokers live and breathe mortgages every day. So who better to work with to get you the most appropriate mortgage for you? Just search Sphere Home Loans or click the link in the show notes and they'll be able to help you wherever you are in Australia. Remember, you don't need a mortgage broker in the same location that you live or where you're buying. The cool thing is, if you moved around, you could keep the same broker. If you moved interstate, if you move locations, it's a digital world now. We can do lots of stuff online. So don't be stressed out by having a professional who isn't in the same suburb. It probably helps to have a doctor in the same suburb. Uh, It's hard to put on gloves and touch things and all that when you're uh, remote, but hey, whatever works. My name's Glenn James. We're joined by John Pigeon, host of the Property Podcast. Let's do a podcast. John, Oscar in the Facebook group writes, thoughts on keeping one to $3,000 as an emergency fund in an investment property offset account. I have a mate who just implemented this as an emergency fund for his investment properties. What do you think? What do you do? What do some of your clients do? Yeah, good problem to have, isn't it? To have excess money up your sleeve. I think most clients, generally speaking, if they've got their owner occupier home, would have multiple offsets and money sitting in those separate offsets and they might just name one of those offsets investment properties or the name of their property or whatever it might be, depending on the size of their portfolio. If you haven't got your principal place of residence, for investment properties, it's not that common to have offset accounts. So I think we need to understand, and you mentioned about Sphere Home Loans at the top of the show, they need to understand your situation. Your mortgage broker needs to be able to look at it and say, well, okay, have you got your principal place of residence? Uh, are you going to have excess funds that are substantial? If the answer is yes to that second one, then we may put an offset account against the investment property because it does cost money to have an offset account, doesn't it? So we need to make sure that it's going to be worthwhile. And and having 3K, for example, in an offset account against an investment property where the debt is arguably tax deductible, I don't think has massive benefits because of the cost of running the offset account. However, that 3K gives someone peace of mind at night knowing it's there dedicated solely for the investment property. And it is that out of sight, out of mind for a couple of grand, three or four or five grand, you know, it could be worth the interest that is 
non-deductible that he saved mm. um, to sleep at night and that's worth all the money in the world for, um, and I will say superficial amounts of money because if you bought a property at $500,000 or six or $700,000, in comparison to that, $3,000 or $4,000 is pretty superficial. I will say though, as a general rule of thumb, per, you talk about with the investment properties to have an emergency buffer. What's a good guy? Just four weeks worth of rent? Yeah, ideally it needs to be a little bit more sophisticated than that. We need to, and this is ideally before we buy the property, right? Not after because it's too late essentially. Before we buy the property, we're looking at the annual expenses and the annual income and creating a before tax and after tax figure. And that before tax amount is before you do your annual tax return. Whatever that amount is, ideally we've got that up our sleeve. So that might be 5K, for example. Mm. When we get our tax return in and and submitted, we may get, say, a, a 3K refund. So we've then putting that 3K back into that 5K buffer account, if you want to call it that. Uh, but we need to know what that amount is at the start of the year for the next 12 months. Then we know we've got all amounts covered, including any maybe maintenance that we might be applying to the property, i.e. if a hot water system blows up, we might have some funds for that. I think in this day and age, particularly with the rental squeeze around Australia, the emergency fund is probably there more for maintenance than loss of rent, right? I mean, there could be one or two weeks. But actually on that, loss of rent for one or two weeks between uh, tenants shouldn't be part of an emergency fund because it's a known thing that you can have in your financial life. You know, we factor for four weeks or three weeks a year vacant. Yeah, that's right. And that comes back to doing the numbers before we buy is you, you, you're factoring in already the rents coming in for 48 or 50 weeks of the year, not the full 52. Uh, but again, comes back to strategy to say, well, what sort of yield can we handle on that port property? Mm. And what are the holding costs going to be? Because because of the interest rates increasing in the last sort of 12 months, we're in a position now where it's a lot harder to find neutral cash flow or positive cash flow properties. So it's it's not a given, but we would assume that in most properties that we purchase around the country, there are going to be some holding costs just because of the interest rates being a little bit higher. It's just how much we can handle. So the key here, strictly speaking, if Oscar did have a house that had a mortgage on it, that he lived in with an offset account, by the book, you would set up a separate offset account just for your emergency fund. And you could beef that up. Um, if you had two properties, you could beef it up an extra five or 10 grand per property and just have a big emergency fund. That would be by the book uh, best way to do it because we're offsetting uh, interest that we're paying on our home that isn't deductible. Uh, it's okay if you've got an offset account on the property and you just want to keep that money out of sight, out of mind. Like it really, there's another question we're going to talk about today where it gets to this point where it's, you know, if it works for you, just get on with it. Yeah. Look, it's a great problem to have. And and uh, Oscar's friend, very smart in, in knowing that they'll have some holding costs. So they're just putting them aside and knowing that the, they're not going to spend it on a Saturday night dedicated purely for that investment property and away we go. How do you do it in your own life? And I'll share how I do it. Yeah, so because we've got our principal place of residence and some debt, we are putting money into offsets, separate offsets, and and someone like, well, there are plenty of lenders out there that allow multiple offsets. Uh, we then have a certain offset that's assigned to to our property portfolio. 
Right. How do you do it? Well, so I don't have any non-deductible debt. No. So all the debt I have, um, I claim the interest on tax because it's all on properties that are investment properties. But what I do is one of the properties that I have with the highest interest rate, I put my personal emergency fund on that because none of my debt is non-deductible. So if I'm going to pay less interest, I'll offset the higher interest rate. And in my life, I don't actually quarantine X amount per property. I just kind of work out what Glenn James needs as an emergency fund. Yeah. Just because I'm self-employed and have staff as a worst case scenario, my emergency fund of cash is quite sizable and I need that um, to feel comfortable. Um, Yeah, that's the other thing, isn't it? Yeah, like by the book, I do the Glenn James spending plan. It says my emergency fund should be X amount. Okay, I'm self-employed. We'll double that. So six months worth of expenses. I'm probably running over a year's worth of expenses um, in my emergency fund. And that's just out of sight, out of mind, offset against the highest interest rate. Yeah, nice. You mentioned there about what more or less allows you to sleep at night. That, mm. That's a really important factor as well. And I'm chatting to a client today that they followed your glorious uh, spending plan and three months was their recommendation obviously in there and they are absolutely sticking to that and making sure they're not going to start investing until they've absolutely got that and rid of all their bad debt. Some may go closer to the line on that as well. Um, but yeah, your mindset is is going to be different every time. And uh, as, uh, as we've said, Oscar, it's a good problem to have to have money put aside. Um, but over time, your buffers generally need to be less and less because the rents are increasing and the interest rates other than the last 12 months aren't necessarily increasing with it. Mm. Sal asks, Hi all, I know car finances are usually a bad idea. I'm in a position where I need to borrow 16K from a bank for a finance. Any recommendations? Currently looking at 8.99% as to who to borrow from and what to stay conscious of. Thanks, MMM crew. Glenn. Yeah, look, I just love personal finance. No one is above the human emotion things. Like he starts off by saying, hi, I know that car finance is a a bad idea usually, but I'm going to do it anyway. And what I want you to know, generally speaking with car finance, the best outcome you have to put finance on a car is if you're using it for work because the running costs of that vehicle for the percentage of time that you're using at work are deductible. And we know with some motivated lease situations or if you work for a a charity or a non-for-profit, there can be some packaging options where categorically it can make sense to finance it. And I always say, chat with your accountant, pay them a few hundred dollars as a once-off to crunch the position, good and bad. So, What I wanted to run through with this, I have a bit of a formula that I use for car finance. Now, at the moment, I don't have any finance on any car, haven't for years. Uh, I know you, John, you borrow through your business because you basically live in your four-wheeled office. Um, So there is a high, high portion that you're on the road seeing clients, seeing properties. And, you know, for someone in real estate, probably makes sense. Now, he's looking at 8.99% and we call it 9%. 
sure, that's fine. If you've got a house, you'll probably get finance around the same price as your mortgage repayment. So what I would say is I'm not too worried about the percentage rate. Like 9% for a car, sure, just make sure it's secured against the car. Remember, if you have unsecured finance, it will always be a higher interest rate. That's why credit cards are... 14% 14% interest, 15, 16, 17% interest, because the bank, when you don't pay, can't go and repossess the steak meal or the pair of jeans that you've you know, consumed. Uh, so they charge a risk premium, which is a higher interest rate. But what I want you to do, Sal, is have a framework in place. Number one, do you actually need to borrow $16,000 for a car? Like, is it mission critical? I need a car tomorrow or is it a, yeah, I'd like one, you know, I'm sick of this. I can't answer that. You need to answer that. In terms of who to borrow from, a lot of the time, like if you're buying secondhand or even new through a dealer, the dealer finance rates are always going to be pretty sharp. But the interest rate isn't the killer. It's you getting caught up getting the emotional heebie-jeebies and buying too much car. That's the killer. And then financing that for more than four years you've got to get this paid off out of your life. Interest isn't your problem. The repayments are tying up your cash flow. That's the problem. So if you are looking at car finance, what I would say is have some guidelines. My personal guidelines that I recommend to people are this. Make sure 50% of your household income isn't tied up in things with motors. So an example, if Sal, I can see that his profile photo, it's him and his dog, we'll assume for this example that it's just Sal lives with his doggy. I'll assume that Sal earns hundred grand a year, right? We've got to make sure that Sal doesn't have more than $50,000 tied up in stuff that's going down in value. If he was earning $100,000, 16 grand for a car, it's pretty good. I dare say if you were earning that much, you probably could save a few months and just pay for it. And also I would say, if you do have savings, it's okay to spend it on a car. A lot of people will like quarantine their money and be like, oh no, this is for my holiday to Prague and I can't touch this. Well, if you get a car loan and you've got money in the Prague account, you're borrowing for Prague. (laughs) You know what I mean? So 50% is the maximum. I would say try and put down 20% as a deposit. So only borrow 80% of the car. And the reason we want to do this, it will slow you down and it will just ensure that throughout the period of the loan, if you ever had to sell the car, generally speaking, the amount you could sell it for would probably clear the debt, okay? So we want to put 20% down. So $16,000 car, see if you throw three or four grand into it, okay? So we get less um, debt. I would say as a general rule of thumb, if your income is $100,000 a year, make sure whatever you do, you do not spend more than 1% of your net monthly payments on car repayments. And it's a bit complicated, but I'll I'll make it easy. It's not really. $100,000, 1% is $1,000. Make sure you're not spending more than $1,000 a month on your car payments on the provisor that it's a four-year loan, you put 20% down and it's not 50% or more of your annual income, Okay. If you can keep to those type of arrangements or guidelines, it will slow you down and you won't buy too much car. The best interest rate is zero and that's paying a car with cash. Can you save up five grand, buy a better car, then save up again when you get another four grand, sell the five grand car for probably four or five grand anyway, 
and buy eight or nine grand car. So just be careful. It's easy, easy, easy to walk into consumer debt. It's easy to get a loan. You can walk into it, but you can't run out of it. You can't walk out of it. It's a long process. So it's a decision that once you commit, it's a thing. So just make sure you don't do it more than four years because some people are buying cars with seven-year loan terms, like seven years tied up. That's an eternity. Car might not be working by then. Yeah. So that's all I would say. And the biggest thing I like to tell people with the car thing and the emotional thing, it's like we need to buy a brand new $80,000 car because safety is our number one thing and it needs to be brand new. Okay. Three, four, five years ago, people were buying brand new cars because safety was number one thing. Now, those cars are five years old now, but they were brand new car five years ago and they were safe. All I'm saying is if you hang your hat on that logic that we need a brand new car for safety, you have to buy a new car every single year. If you're hanging your emotional hat on, I need a new car for safety. I would hypothesize the last five years, 10 years even, there is a tipping point where most cars made in the last five or 10 years are pretty safe. That's good recommendations for sell. I think um, the other the other part of it is too, it ties up your lending or restricts your borrowing capacity if you're wanting to, to go and do something mm. uh, as such as buy, buy your own home to live in. And just on that, you know, you may have a house deposit, right? And you might be ready to buy a home within the next six months to 12 months, right? And you do need a new car. Just speak to a mortgage broker before you go and buy that car because it might be a detriment to you to spend your cash on the car where if you wait till the mortgage is settled and then you've got a car loan or you get a car loan, you could still get the same mortgage. So there are some moving parts there. Um, But yeah, just be a little bit strategic. And people say, well, if I've got a mortgage, should I refinance and get another mortgage and buy a car with that because the interest rate on the house is cheaper than what I can get for finance? Most of the time, as I said before, when you go into a dealer, brand new or secondhand car, and they're like, do you have a house? And they go, yes. A heap of risk gets taken off the table because if you default, they know that there's some meat potentially in the background. Um, so a lot of the time, if you're a homeowner, you can actually get the same interest rate from a dealer as a po- as well as your mortgage. Now, even if it's within 1%, I'm still recommending getting dealer finance or external finance over four years as opposed to setting up a second mortgage for $30,000 to fund the car because that second mortgage, it will be set at you know, 25 or 30 years And guess what? Five, six, seven years later, you'll be paying the minimum down, the car isn't paid off and you've got this debt left over. So Mm. get your car paid off over four years. Smash it. What what if they were able to extract some equity, say 16 grand, Mm. and that was their sole focus? They they got it at bank rates, uh, as in, sorry, home loan Mm. rates, so 5%, 6%. And that was their sole focus to pay that down in a three-year period, just like it was an external car loan provider. That's fine, but humans are fickle and mm. 18 months into it, oh, we want to do this. And then we're like, oh, well, we just we just pay a little bit less on the on that car mortgage. Things have changed. Yeah, so at as least, long as we're disciplined. 
Most people aren't. (laughs) Most people, most of the time, are not disciplined. And if you want a real-life scenario, Google, why do credit cards exist? Mm. That is an option. Yeah, Mm. it is. Absolutely. But if the shoe fits. Yes. But I'm saying just do stuff to protect you and future you (laughs) and get the thing out of sight, out of mind and smash it within four years. Hey, there's a question here from Haley. What are the pros and cons of renting your property to family? So I touched on this at the top of the episode. I'm going to say family or friends, right? Have you ever rented a property of yours to family or friends and what was the experience like? Uh, Me personally, no. So I've got no personal experience on that, uh, but I have had a lot of clarity calls where people have asked me, should I do it or I am doing it and now what do I do to be able to put a Band-Aid over it or rectify it? Uh, Generally speaking, there's a lot more cons than there are pros. And and let's start with the pros. I suppose when someone comes in as to why they would do something, they they look at it and say, well, I can get it rented day one because my mum or my dad or my cousin or my best friend needs a house and I can give them one and it's in the area and the shoe fits. Okay. That's a positive because we don't have vacancy. Doesn't mean we won't have vacancy down the track when the cousin changes their mind, has to move out. Generally... Another positive might be, well, if I need to go around and fix a gutter or the toilet or something like that, I can usually just ring them up and say, look, I'm coming around to fix it. I mightn't even ring them up. I just go and do it, right? There's that, I suppose, a easy come, easy go. And in a lot of cases, what I've seen is uh, it, have, it um, doesn't require a property manager because they're paying direct to the owner and hopefully they're paying when they should be and it's set up officially so they don't need the property manager in between to to navigate the the weeds of all that. They don't need that conduit. So they're probably the main positives that I've seen someone as, as to why someone would do that. However, on the con side of things, usually it's at a lower rent because we feel bad for mum, dad, cousin, friend, etc. Oh, we won't charge you that. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a good deed for you just because I know you sort of thing. So you're generally not maximising your rent. As a result of that emotion, it's all about emotion and that's what comes into play. So they may also say, well, actually, I can't afford this month. Um, can I play catch up next month? And all of a sudden becomes this administration issue that you never signed up for in the first place. And if you haven't got a property manager to follow that up, then you might not have, uh, you, you might be taking up a lot of your time. There's probably also not a property management agreement in place. It was simply a handshake in the first place. Yeah, you can come in. This is the date you can move in. And all of a sudden they've brought a dog and two friends with them and um, and that wasn't sort of the agreement at the start, but there's no agreement in place, so it's happening anyway. And because they're related or they're a friend, yeah, that's fine. I'll just let them do that. So the, the maintenance on the property or the standard of the property may not be kept. Now, you could argue that that can happen to anyone that they don't know. Uh, but with a property manager in between, hopefully that is is uh, mitigated somewhat. So generally speaking, the cons are, are far worse than the positives of actually having a family member in your home or even even a friend. Yeah, I had a uh, I've had personal experiences um, with this scenario. Uh, my cousins had a property. They 
put their brother in it and tenant of the year, treated it like he owned it. And it was a really good thing. Literally like the pool needed a new something. He would just go and buy the the new anaconda or whatever. Like he totally went above and beyond amazing tenant of the year, treated it like, you know, it was his. And, you know, you can get those tenants um, without being family members. One of my properties where I used to live, I got a message from uh, the lady next door. She goes, oh, I'm just letting you know, so-and-so, we'll just call him David, David vacuums that property within an inch of its life. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> I've got really good tenants. Like, yeah. um, and so believe it or not, everyone, people can be reasonable and you yes. can get good tenants. Um, so that's a, that's obviously an advantage plus the stuff that you were saying. But disadvantage, it can actually test, um, I don't know, you might find things about people that are in your life through doing stuff like this that you thought would happen and it didn't. Uh, I had a brand new property, first tenant in there uh, were people in my world. Uh, they lived in it for 12 months and they moved out, got the bond back, all good, paid on time every week and all that stuff, good tenants. And then agent calls me, hey, um, the back of every door and every architrave is scratched to buggery and so are some of the walls because they had a puppy. And I've got a view that with properties, if you've got an animal, you can have a pet. I don't care. It's your house. You've got to live in it. Mm. But if your animal trashes it, guess what? You're paying. Mm. Now, for me, I was more pissed off that, quote unquote, a friend would move out knowing that the walls were scratched to buggery and not let me know. Like, horrendous. Yeah, that's fair. Where, so I said, we're getting a handyman in. They're repainting all the doors. They had to pull the doors off, sand all the doors, the architraves, repaint them all. And it just really pissed me off because you think as a friend, you and this is and this is like you can't expect people to do what you would do because we can't control people. Yeah, it was just I shouldn't have found out from the real estate no. and you shouldn't have tried to hide that um, because it was a brand new apartment. Yeah, no, so probably in, in response to all that, it sounds like it's a pretty negative experience in most cases, but but I suppose, Haley, if you're, you're up for it and you really want to do it, I think it's a, it's a case of going down the right sources and saying, okay, get yourself a property manager, they pay their bonds, they pay market rent, and it it's just so happens that it's your family member or friend that's actually in there, and that way you've got recourse, and your your actually property manager can deal with any issues that arise, and you can still stay at arm's length. Yeah, and that was it. Like both of the properties that I had friends in, they were through property managers. They were basically paying market rates, mm. maybe ten or twenty dollars um, cheaper. But yeah, when I had to have the repairs done, it just came out of their bond. They had no say. No. They had no right. recall because, yeah. no, you trashed it. It was brand new. You're paying for it. And and if we want to go a step further, the low rent issue comes back to bite if you're looking to lend money down the track. Okay, you rent, you've got a property. All right, what's it rent for? Give me a copy of your, of your rental statement. Mm. Oh, there's only 410 coming in per week versus 460 mm. right? That $50 a week might be 30 grand extra in borrowings. 
And I would say, I want you to work this exercise out in your head, right? I know that there are legitimate people who legitimately want to help out family members and legitimately will charge less rent. Now, along the same lines as what John was saying, like it could impact your future borrowings or whatnot, I had a client once, they had an investment property and his mum was living in it and she was working, single lady, working full-time job, right? And they were charging her $200 a week less, okay? Now, that's fine. You can do that. Do what you want to do. But the problem was they wanted to get rid of the property or they weren't happy with the, or something else. I forget the thing. And, and I said to him, I'm like, well, why don't you move mum into another rental and you physically transfer $200 a week into her bank account and actually help pay her rent. Yep. And it just changed the like, oh, like I've got to give her $200 a week. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. well, you're doing it now effectively. So you just got to make sure your logic stands up. If you were to do something like that, have someone have subsidized, subsidized rent because you want to help them and whatnot, if you help them and they weren't living in your property, would you be comfortable transferring $100 a week, $50 a week to their personal account? Because that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And and they might be happy to do that. And that's by far the best outcome I've seen over the journey, isn't it? But it's cleaner. And particularly if you want to keep that property, that property is generating market rent. And then we're helping our family member with a physical cash payment, Mm. whether it's monthly or weekly. And then at least you know that you actually do want to help them and it's not a guilt trip. That's and right. you've actually got the money. Yeah. So, yeah, it's wild, right? Yeah, I like it. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, we're back. Community segment of the week. We're talking about tips for being a manager or a leader at work. Tips for being an amazing manager or a leader at work. Uh, we can't do this segment of the podcast without Sky Wealth. It's the start of a year. Get your bloody life insurance and income insurance sorted. Pew, pew, pew. You got to do it. It's too late once you've had the accident. It's too late once you die if you don't have life insurance. Mm. 
I shared at the end of last year, I was dealing with a friend who died prematurely, young dad, 30 years old, no life insurance. Was at no the good. funeral the week before Christmas. Yeah. It breaks my heart. We're donating money, there's been help, but is a $20,000, $50,000 GoFundMe of use or a mortgage cleared of six hundred grand or whatever it is? Mm. So my encouragement is get your life insurance and income protection sorted. Sky.com.au, Sky Wealth, they'll have a 15-minute discussion, walk you through the process and you can get insured this year. Tips for being an amazing manager or leader at work. Do you want to read one, John? Yeah. Look, this reeks of Shelley Johnson, doesn't it, this stuff? A little bit. Tori, be approachable, transparent, and understanding that your team are humans and be flexible as much as you can. Christine, trust your team to do their jobs. No one likes to be micromanaged and listen. Mm. Sean said, don't ask someone to do something you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. Lyra, Never lose sight of what it was like to be a confused junior treated like a shat cacker, shit kicker <laughs> by a bad manager. Two, the pathetic hierarchy we impose on people means nothing outside your job, so don't humiliate yourself with utter rudeness at work. Three, call out the winds, lean in with empathy and don't forget to laugh throughout. That's good. Just don't treat people like crap. How about that? Hard inning. Very good. Mm. Stephen says, let workers have a small USB fan on their desk on hot days. <laughs> sounds, like, <laughs> sounds like we weren't allowed to have that, Stephen's work. I don't work. know where. Yeah, it's a tough workplace that doesn't allow that. Stacey says, lead by example again. Mm, I, I've got a retort to that one. As long as your example's good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, Tara said, train them, don't blame them. Always treat them with respect and never disrespect them in front of clients or other staff, even if they have made a mistake. Take the time to check in. Yeah, so don't berate people. Berate, is that the word, John? Berate? Berate, yeah. Don't berate people publicly on a Slack message when there's everyone in the group. No. Don't bring people down when there's external parties present. We don't fight in front of the kids, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Just on that lead by example, it is good to a point. Um, I'm leading by example... I'm putting, I'm washing up my lunch and packing the kitchen away clean. That's good leadership. I'm turning the dishwasher on because it's my day to do that. I'm showing up first to the meeting, sitting there waiting. Five minutes is late, all that stuff. Awesome. When you kick up into the business world, leading by example actually doesn't work. You know why, John? Well, sometimes it doesn't delegate well. You can make the mistake of doing it all yourself. Well, the thing is, I can't lead a graphic designer really well, by example, because I don't know how to do good graphic design or graphic design. So what I was getting at, and I was, this is actually funny. I'm glad Stacey brought this up because I do agree, but I think it does get to a tipping point um, for entrepreneurs. I was thinking about this just yesterday. In 2016, I did a, a week at Stanford and the executive leadership course was called um, executive leadership. No, what was it called? What was it? Anyway, it was an executive leadership course at Stanford. <laughs> and we we did five days, you stay on campus. We had the lecturers, like there was one lecturer who taught the founders of Google, right? Like just we had an, the marketing lecturer, she was in charge of Obama's, a presidential campaign, like 
launch camp, mate. Like just the Good most stuff. crazy people. And the dude who was teaching us, they were drumming into us, you can't lead by example because you cap out at the things that you're good at. You have to lead by design. And the leading by design is how I've built this current business and uh, particularly my old financial planning business, but it works better here. You create systems and processes for those that you lead to flourish in. So you get the best output that way. So I've created systems and processes. So when Shelly does the career slash work podcast, she's got, I've led with the system and the processes. She can be the best version of her and go to town. Mm. The property show, you guys can use your absolute professional strength at property and smash it. So I like to lead by design. And that was the whole thing that they really taught us in Stanford. And I was actually, it was so funny. I was only thinking about it yesterday for me to fly up to San Francisco, do a week at Stanford. It was $15,000 for the week. Like that's crazy. Who would pay that? But the investment that I paid to do that course, just learning about the leading by design changed my life and my business. And it's just so awesome. Yeah. No, it's a good call. It's a good mm. call. But stacking the dishwasher still works. Yeah, and, and that's what I mean. Like leading by example, absolutely. Culture is caught, not taught. Like yeah. we have to like, this is how we do it around here. But when you are in business, I can't lead a property podcast by example. Like, hey, John, I'll show you how to buy property. You watch me. Like, Yeah, I think generally happen. speaking, lead by example might be like, work ethic and and picking up the rubbish yeah. and, and doing those yeah. little things, isn't it? And that's what I mean. Like when you are stepping into that small business and entrepreneurial stuff, you have to build systems and lead by design. Yep. So, all right, we'll bounce out of the community segment of the week and just into some housekeeping. Thanks for listening today. If you're new, we appreciate you uh, letting us in your ears. We like to do a an informal infotainment podcast if you are new. We always want to entertain, encourage, and add value where possible. That's not even in the housekeeping, but just welcome. Uh, John, you've got a new book, Sort Your Property Out, coming out next month. You can buy it now. It's perfect for first home buyers. It's perfect for first time investors. It's also a little bit, you know, rough. And I'm talking about <laughs> sexy rough, some rough sex in the book. Can you say that? Whatever. Um, about advanced investment and property strategies. So Indeed. it does get violent in the sexiest way. Am I getting cancelled? I am. There's a link in the show note. And what I said in the Facebook group is if you are part of our community and you call this place your home and you're in the group and you engage and you listen to the podcast, we don't charge for you know most of our content. But I'm just asking, as a membership fee, can you support us by buying a copy of this book? Sure. What do we get? 2% or something of the wholesale price. Like we don't make heaps of money from these books, but I just would love as many people to buy this uh, as a nod of support, but I'm not just getting you to donate money. The value that you will get out of this book will be so immense. It'll be worth more than the $30 that you pay for it. So if you could please, I'm probably only going to ask you to do this twice this year for this book and the investment book that I'm writing at the moment, which I need to ask for an extension for because I'm a procrastinator. Um, we just really would value your personal support and 
I don't ask for much, but I love you. That's a song. I'm going to write that. So sortyourpropertyout.com or there's a link in the show note. It's a big book. It's over 100,000 words. Like we're not Mm. messing around here. This is a real book and it's so amazing. And John, it's going to be so good. I'm really proud of you, young man. Thank you, young man. I was was excited to actually see it complete, to be honest, because Mm. I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Don't write a book. It's the worst job. (laughs) No, Um, no. It's really um, yeah, it was, it was really cool to see it as a first-time uh, book writer. It was good to good to see it um, mm. come through to to print. And also, we're we're trying a bit of a book club thing at the moment. It's not a formal thing, but if you want to join us on the journey, this month in January, we're reading the Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Uh, probably last week of January, we'll put a post up in the Facebook group and just write, "Hey, what did everyone learn from the book? What's one takeaway?" Um, and there's some links in the show notes if you want to. Um, purchase that book as well. Maybe this is what you need to do, everyone. Go to Amazon or Booktopia, buy Sort Your Property Out, buy The Psychology of Money, pay one postage thing, done. Maybe even free shipping. Probably free. And finally, uh, if you do want to keep in touch with us on a fortnightly basis, uh, we've got a good email newsletter. Uh, I just want to add value once a fortnight um, in text format and also... um, just you can keep in touch with some of the highlights of what's happening in the community. Jake says, hi again. Everyone had a previous post about investing my 100K into ETFs. Decided I'm thinking more short term at the moment. Am I better off just leaving it in the bank at 5.5% interest or are there some relatively stable shares I could invest in? I don't need it anytime soon, but think I'd like to potentially buy an apartment within two years. Glenn. Well, I would say, John, like what are you doing if if Jake walks into your orifice mm. slash office mm. and says, I've got a hundred grand, I want to buy an apartment in a couple of years, what should I do with the money? What are you saying? Personally, buy one now. Personally, <laughs> like, why, why are you buying an apartment? No. <laughs> we we trash that out. What is what what does that purchase look like and why? Mm. How much are we potentially spending now? Because we don't know what the price is going to be in two years. That's that's the first part of it, isn't it? And is it to live in or is it an investment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So it sounds as though it's something to live in because it is specific, but uh, maybe wrong. Mm. Um, so 100K, let's strip that back for a minute. 100K is a 20% deposit on a 500K apartment. That would get you a one-bedroom apartment in city centres. Yep, yeah. yep. So if we need a two-bed, we might be up for 650 to 750 So that's generalizing, but we're actually not far off it. So from a property perspective, uh, we just work out, well, what can we borrow and can we get into that property sooner rather than later and, and start to let it do its thing and, and using the bank's leveraging, um, hopefully get a result. So I would be going to a mortgage broker first. May have already done this, Jake, but going and seeing them first and just seeing what we can do with that potentially right now or even in six months or nine months' time. So if that's the case, we need to keep it very fluid. Mm. And generally speaking, the way I see it is if it is locked in that for whatever reasons, you might be at university and you've got two years to go, my income will be really good in two years' time and I've saved heaps of cash over the last five years or whatever. Yeah, two years' time, like I can't actually borrow now, so it needs to be parked. Um, 
if you're certain on that, you're just putting it in a, an interest-bearing account, like as simple as that. Mm. I'm not going to list the best interest accounts because I don't do clickbaity crap like that, but it's not hard to find out what accounts pay the highest interest and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, we just, in the investing world, anything under four years is really short-term and shouldn't be invested. Yeah. What I would say is part two for that, because he's like, I don't need it anytime soon or I might. So, and these are the words, thinking like potential. <laughs> so yeah. he goes, but I'm thinking I'll like to potentially buy an apartment within two years. Because that's so wishy-washy and a maybe, what you could do, Jake, is put $50,000 into an ETF, right? Knowing that there is a chance that in two years' time, that $50,000 might be worth $42,000 or $45,000. There is a chance in two years' time that $50,000 could be worth $58,000 or higher than the cash rate. And we know at the moment, like 5.5% risk-free cash rate, that's five and a half grand a year, basically, right? So we know that that's guaranteed. But you might be like, I'm going to put it in like an IVV or, you know, S&P 500 fund for the next two years. If in two years' time it's flat or a bit underwater, well, I'll push out my goal because whatever. Or in two years' time, yeah, did 18%. Yeah, I'll sell it now. So a lot of this comes back to risk profile. Sometimes when these goals aren't locked away, you can just put the money to work in a broad balanced ETF or at least half of it. But you just need to know that there is a big chance that the capital isn't locked in. Well you done. probably, I think the the thing is don't do anything, have an eat, pray, love moment and really resolve, are you wanting to be a property owner or buyer or not? And if the answer is yes, when will that be? When's the earliest you can do that? And then just get into it. Yeah. And if it's no or maybe, well, maybe there's an argument that, so for example, if this person, if Jake was saving $200 a week, I'm just making a number up, right? You could put the $100,000 into an ETF, $50,000 into an ETF, and just not put any new money into that ETF, just save the rest. But I don't know, I just love these thought experiments. because because, I'd really like to know what income Jake's on now. Yeah. And the whole thing is, it's like with investing and time-based goals, if you were investing, you know, for example, if you had $30,000, right, and in three years' time, we need to pay $30,000 for the first year of two school kids. We've got twins and we're going into private school, right? You can't be dicking around on maybes like, nah, it needs no. to stay in cash because we need that money there. You can't go, well, we'll just hold the kids back a year, <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But with goals like this that are a bit wishy-washy and maybe, well, if the market isn't great, well, we just push the goal out and just keep saving cash. Yeah, I don't know. and, and for, for Jake and everyone else out there, the, the most common statement I get is, I wish I'd invested sooner. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has said that since the start of time. And they'll keep saying it. Um, here's a question, John, uh, from Shannon, newbie to the group, and I'm really enjoying it. I was wondering if anyone had any advice on owning units that do short stay accommodation. Due to our location, we are opting to send our kids to boarding school, 
rather than split the family unit to educate the kids at high school. My idea is to buy a unit so that we can use it when travelling to the coast to see them as a base, but also to have it available for short-term renting when we aren't using it. Thinking about using the on-site management. We own rental houses, but I've never purchased a unit before or done the short-stay thing, so I'd love any tips, advice, feedback if you have before I purchase. Yes. So, Shannon... First part of it is there's a really strong chance here where we're mixing emotion with our wealth creation by saying we're buying a unit for the kids to go to school. Well, I think it's just for them to visit the kids, isn't it? And while they're yeah, not, yeah, essentially. But yeah. like we're, we're sort of saying the same thing in the sense yes. that would we buy there in mm. that location if our kids weren't going to school there? And we have these sort of conversations all the time and, again, there's no right or wrong but what I would say is does the location and the type of property stack up for wealth creation and how important is that for you in relation to just buying a unit and just non-emotionally saying, well, look, I, I couldn't care less if we don't make any money from this. It's just somewhere where we can stay and mm. rent it out every other time. Mm. If that's the if that's the part of it, there's a strong element that says, why not just hire a, a cabin or something when you go to stay there or a unit or something, Airbnb yourself, instead of having ownership and running costs and dealing with Airbnbs and everything else, right? Now, you might have already thrashed that through, Shannon decided, yep, thought of all that and I'm, I'm cool with actually buying a unit here and I know that houses generally uh, perform better than units and I've done my research on this location and I don't mind it going forward. I'm just going to buy this unit. The Airbnb aspect of it is, well, we, we sounds as though we're going to have a mortgage or some type of mortgage. So we do need some income coming through. Generally, we, we Airbnb it at the most, at the highest times of the year, the peak periods, which are school holidays. Are you going to be there in non-school holidays or school holidays? Well, I reckon in this scenario, because the kids are at high school, the kids would probably go back home to the country, not That's over right. to the coast. So, so it, it could stack up. It's going to work in their favour by staying there in term and renting it out in the peak seasons or the peak periods, mm. which may be your Easter's, your Christmas and, and, and school holidays around. So if it's a coastal town, which sounds like it is, there's generally some appeal for Airbnb in, in coastal towns in school holiday time. So the tips are make it Airbnb ready, make it attractive to anyone who wants to stay, take good photos and have good Airbnb managers who you can rely on and you don't have to be in the weeds of getting phone calls at midnight on a Monday night because the hot water system's not working or something. Well, they said that there's on-site management that they could use, mm. but I'd probably just caution a lot of um, body corporates and stratas now, they're not blanketly or blanketly, whatever, saying with a blanket that you can't do Airbnb, quote unquote, but what they do is they put in the bylaws that there can't be any short-term stays, which could be uh, two nights or less, yes. Yes. Or three nights or less. So you just have to check that. My comments on this and... I actually wanted to put this question in as uh, for my own benefit to ask John something. <laughs> um, you've got to look at it two ways. Like John said, is this a venture to invest and grow wealth for the future 
or is it a luxury? Now, when we look at investing and building wealth for the future, we want to remove the emotion, John. We want to, you know, I was just writing this morning in the investment book that's coming out this year that uh, cognitive bias things like, oh, I've always banked with this bank and they've got a great app and I'm going to buy shares in this bank because it's good. Well, you might pick the wrong bank, you know. Mm. <laughs> you could have just put your money invested in the other bank over there and just enjoyed using this bank and you would have done a lot better financially. So what you need to work out, if it is an investment play and we need to grow wealth, awesome. If it is a, we've got excess money, we can afford this, it's probably a bit more of a luxury. Well, we're not really worried. Like we might get some cost recovery from some rental, but this isn't a, a, a big time equity play. It gets really harder when you're trying to merge the luxury and the investment play because that's when the dumb things happen. So what I would say is, do you need the money? Most people do. Oh, well, I've heard of people that have millions of dollars that you know have holiday homes that are empty. I was in a house on Sydney Harbour at the end of last year, looking at the Harbour Bridge at Kirribilli, okay, owned by a very famous Australian. Yes. I was there on the balcony. Friends were staying there. They use it once a year for the fireworks. Mm. It's worth $15 million. Throughout the year, they don't generate any income from it. It's a luxury, right? Yep. So what I would say is maybe have a clarity call with John because it could actually stack up with you not needing it in peak season. It might. Mm. But John, a question here, we'll just touch on it quickly from Olivia. Advice for a baby on the way. Hi, everyone. Does anyone have tips of how to set up your bank structure when you have a baby? Like, do you transfer money into the existing spendings or clothes account? Or do you set up new spending accounts for the baby? This is for where the baby is here, not for preparing pregnancy and baby-related costs. What does work for people thinks in advance? Look, if you jump into the Facebook group, um, just search baby and you can see a whole heap of comments from people. But what I would say is when, and people might look, how can you talk about having a baby? You haven't had a baby. Okay, forget that. If you're going to have a pet or you're going to have a new hobby, that's going to have a monthly cost, right? The concepts are the same. What you can do, you just need to factor in or have a bit of an idea how much you might need to allocate. And what I would personally do is just increase maybe my existing spending accounts or close account. Or, and this is where personal finance is personal, if you wanted a separate little baby account and just put $20 a week into that, $40 a week, whatever that cost is, just do it. Just do something that works for you. If you've got a, a pet, you might have a little pet account. If you've got a, a, a boat or a hobby or you might do sewing. I went to Spotlight over the break. It's a wild time. I was buying some black fabric for the studio. She said, have you got a Spotlight card? I'm like, does it look like I have a Spotlight card? <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing here. No, I didn't say that. I thought of though. <laughs> like, do I look like this other guy who has a Spotlight card? <laughs> so... Whatever your hobby is, if it's sewing, you might have a little account on the side because there's going to be ongoing costs for that hobby that is new, like a baby. Mm. Problem with the baby hobby, you can't give it up. My name's Glenn. I'm annoying. This is John Pigeon. We'll leave it there. And do you want to have a quick 10-minute after party? Quick one. Let's do it. Okay. See you, everyone. And if you are new, we do a bit of an after party where we just catch up and talk about life and stuff. 
Um, so if you are interested in the boringness of our lives, um, hang around and... Basically, Glenn talks about his issues. My problems, yeah. Oh, this <laughs> therapy with John. <laughs> okay, bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 
Well, that's unfortunate. I'd like to know what his real daddy looks like. Well, Mm. apparently similar to me. Yes. There you go. Mm. Oh, well, you've got a doppelganger. Doppelganger. Remember that on Facebook a million years ago? You used to upload your um, um, thingies or whatever. Still a thing, Facebook. So uh, let me just have a look. I was yeah. So I'm. You'll have to come up for lunch one day because I've moved into my new apartment. Yes, I've uh, I've driven past it, mm. and I shared over the break. And I just wanted to give everyone an update in the Facebook group and on Instagram. When I was doing, when I exited the uh, existing property, yep. Um, I got a cleaner in. Right, paid for a clean. Yes. And before the last thing I did before I left, you know those toilet discs yeah. that you stick onto the side of the bowl and they're like a green goo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they smell nice and all that. Well, relatively nice. Um, you got one. Well, I, I'm just like I put one of them on each. There's three toilets in the house. I put one on each toilet mm. and then the little disc dispenser had like three little or some goo left. I'm like, I'll be nice. I'll just leave this in the ensuite toilet. Yeah. Oh, the ensuite cupboard. So anyway, got uh, an email the day after I handed the keys back. Oh, Glenn, we've we've done the exit inspection. Um, there's just three items to attend to. I'm like, before we can release them. Actually, I'm going to read. I'm going to read this. Um, Good afternoon, Glenn. Please be advised your vacate inspection has been completed and overall the property was presented in a good condition. Thank you for this, exclamation mark. There are a few minor items that require attendance in order for the tenancy to be finalised. Please see below. I've also attached a copy of the vacate condition report for your viewing. And then they listed the three things. You're welcome to collect the keys from our Newcastle office and have them returned by 5pm Tuesday the 1st to have the above mentioned items rectified. Once these items have been attended to, we will then be authorised to finalise the tenancy and release the bond. The first photo, remove blue item from ensuite vanity. Hmm. That was the little dispenser. Yeah, right. The second item, remove cloth on bedroom three floor. The cleaners had accidentally left a cloth. Wow. The third item, remove all items from three times council bins. I'm like, sure, I'll swing by and put the bins out. Dropped in to put the bins out. And then one of the neighbours like, yeah, I'm pretty sure one of the other neighbours filled it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, all right, whatever. But I am not driving to a real estate's office, picking up keys, yeah. driving to the property, picking up a cloth yeah. and a little blue thing, then driving back, dropping the key off to finalise the tenancy. Wow. It is, and I, I was genuinely shocked. I'm like, this is the most petty thing I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. And I, I, I put it on Instagram, put it in the Facebook group. I had so, so many property managers message me saying, that's ridiculous. We would have just grabbed it. Did they? Yeah. Yep. It's just so, anyway, oh, so, it's- yeah, ridiculous. And I'm not blaming the, um, the, the property managers, quote unquote, mm. I'm blaming the leadership of that company 
that they would teach their employees to be that petty. Now, I get it that if the place was a complete putrid dump and there was like, yeah, this guy's, he's been slack, he's been sloppy. Anyway, when the year started, she called me. I said, oh, hey, Glenn, just, uh, you didn't have to put that stuff online because I I named the company (laughs) um, and I won't name them now because I don't need the drama and, you know, this is the problem. I forget that my platform's big. So have some mm. grace mm. if you want. You don't have to. You didn't have to put it online. I'm like, oh, you're in the group, are you? No, but someone sent it to me. I'm like, well, to be honest, it was the most petty thing I've ever experienced in my life. I didn't yeah. put the garbage bins on there because I'm like, sure, I'll swing back, put the bins out. It was bin night. They were emptied. Whatever. That's fine. What they say? Oh, well, you because you paid a professional cleaner, you can call them and get them to pick up the keys. I'm like, no, I'm not causing someone else to go and do stuff that's yeah. petty, yeah. I'm not doing it. Like this whole thing, them taking a photo, putting it in a report, them writing those two lines on the email, the drama of me putting it on Facebook, it would not, like this is just a big circle jerk of wasting time. Mm. Like what are we doing here? So, and I get it, there was people like, well, it's hygiene. I'm like, that's fine. But your job as a property manager was completely different to the new agent here at my rental. She's awesome. Uh, Green Street Property in Newcastle. Alison, she's fantastic. Really good experience. And I would use them for my own properties. The company that I was with prior, I would not use for my own investment properties. Because if they're treating people like that and wasting people's time, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm sure there's um, there's worse things to that have occurred on um, property exits. Yeah, I just anyway, I'm just like, look, I'm not going back. And I logged in and released the bond by myself. But what I okay, so what I have done is I've learned a couple of things, and this is the lesson for everyone. If you are paying an exit clean for your rental property to vacate, have the real estate agent organize it on your behalf. Ask them to organize it with their cleaners and take it out of the bond. Because if there's any issues that are petty, they're not disturbing you. Let them be petty with stuff they organized. Yeah. Secondly, what I said to her, I said, I'm more than happy to go and pick up the rag and the friggin' toilet thing, but I'll meet you there five minutes before the next open inspection and do it myself. I'm just not doing laps of Newcastle for that. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. And then the second learning, if an agent does say that to you, and I and I said to this agent, and if she's listening, I don't, like, you're not a bad person. I get it. I said, like, I'm really sorry I'm a pain in the ass and I'm sorry that every phone call that a property manager makes, it's always a problem. Like, no one calls their property manager saying, hey, just calling to... wanting you to have a nice day. Like the job of a property manager, it's so bad because people are so, like it's just left of a police officer putting up with the scum of the earth and in some of the, like because I know that people are horrendous, but there's also some really good tenants and don't punish. Like I was paying $1,000 a week. Even if I was paying $500 a week, that's serious money. Don't waste my frigging time. Pick up the rag and just get on. So Alison, the awesome property manager who I'm leasing this one through, she called me before I, she said, come and get the keys. And she said, 
oh, I'm, I'm just here. The apartment's in a really good condition. I've just cleaned something that was a little bit off and I've left some cleaning stuff for you in case you want it. If you don't want it, just throw it out. So that was the experience I had. Yeah, so I'm yeah. like, oh, well, I haven't rented for a million years. Well, I guess I'll just leave this to be nice. And, and no, all, don't um, be nice. It's all experience, isn't it? You know what to expect and what not to expect after you do things a few times mm. over. So mm. she asked me, she goes, well, the amount of brand damage that that does. And I'm like, well, don't yeah. be petty. So yeah. if you don't be petty and you do a good job, you don't get bad press. No. It's pretty simple. Yeah, that's right. Not hard. So I took the post down um, and I did feel a bit bad naming, shaming, but also don't be petty and I wouldn't yeah. have had to do that. You're using the power of your uh, group yeah, but I don't – and that's the thing. I was a bit – I did regret doing it because I don't want to ever use this stuff for that and I was just more of a – Yeah. It was a bit of a lapse of judgment but I was yeah, just so fuming. Annoyed. I'm on my boat in Shoal Bay over the holidays and they're like, <laughs> now go you're back and pick entitled. up a rag. <laughs> I was on my boat. I'm, I'm trying to relax I was relax just about here. to have a cheese platter. Yeah, I'm trying to relax mm, and my- I get these emails saying – drive around Newcastle and deal with the most petty thing I've ever dealt with. With my captain's hat on. With my captain's uh, hat. I was busy. The the cops drove past the light. Nice hat because I've got a captain's hat. All right, that's all we've got time for. I've got some other stuff to update on but we'll have to do it another after party. Yeah, thanks for updating me on uh, having to write the script, uh, (laughs) do an audio book as well. That's great. Oh, yeah, I've emailed them and um, you probably have to come up here a few days running and do it here. Can't wait. Yeah, it is the worst job ever. All right, buy John's book or wait for the audiobook. Thanks, friends. Bye. Bye.